1: My dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't,
0: you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Owen Eastwood helps teams and organizations thrive. He really focuses on the systems and the processes and how you can build an elite culture. And he is someone who mixes ancient philosophies and wisdoms and he certainly is spiritual in a lot of different ways. And ultimately he tries to help coaches and and leaders and sports organizations get clear on their vision and help them create processes to make their vision a reality. And over the past decade, Owen has worked with some of the most elite teams and groups in the world, including the English football team, their national soccer team, as we would call it here in the U.S., the British Olympic team, NATO, and the South African cricket team. And all along the way, he's coached their leaders on how to build world-class culture and take performance to the highest level. So Owen and I are similar in a lot of ways. We both are focused on performance, but my focus has always, up until now, been on helping individuals unlock the potential of their people or themselves. Owen takes more of a system approach. He looks at the whole and tries to help organizations figure out how they can function better. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's deep. Uh, In some ways, it's dark. But for me, it was actually quite bright. And it was bright because we had a conversation and a dialogue about the things that really matter. We talked about relationships. We talked about the importance of focusing on the team and the whole and how none of us get there alone. And we all are genetically, biologically, physiologically, psychologically designed for a desire to belong. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Owen. I know I did. Here we go. Owen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you, Um, but I wasn't expecting you to share some information with me before we even hit record, which you shared that your father-in-law just passed. Um, I was planning to ask you about your dad, who clearly had an impact on you even after he was gone. Um, But the interesting thing for me was this past weekend, I went to a reunion for the camp that I went to in the summertime. And part of the reason I went to the reunion was we were honoring one of my friends um, who I also grew up with in in my town who who passed away three years ago. And we were honoring his legacy by putting a bench uh, in the woods. Um, And then on that was Friday night. And on Saturday night, I went to a gala for um, an organization that helps kids with cancer uh, because one of my best friends, his son, uh, was diagnosed with cancer and is now in remission and doing well. But this organization does amazing work for kids with cancer. And the reason the organization was started was because the woman who started it lost a son to cancer. And so it was an emotional, Mm -hmm. teary-eyed event but also had dancing and and celebration and everyone wore sparkles. And the organization is called Hope for Henry. It's an amazing organization. I mean, then lastly, also on Saturday, before I went to the gala, I was talking to somebody and I didn't even know, but he had lost his father and his father-in-law in in the same uh, year. And so he was really opening up to me about that experience, and what that was like. Um, And so it's interesting the timing of this, because those are like three different, experiences that I had over the weekend, where it was having me reflect on life and and think about life from all different angles. And uh, that to me is a pretty full, (laughs) exhausting weekend, um, (laughs) but enriching as well. And so I'd love to just start with uh, sort of the circle of life and and what you've experienced the past week and um, how you think about death from a spirituality standpoint, from a belonging standpoint, wherever you want to take it. But I figured we'd start there.
1: Yeah, no. Well, thank you. It feels quite cathartic actually talking about this (laughs) because I really dearly love my father-in-law and he passed away last Tuesday. And um, it's definitely taken the wind out of our sails for a few days. So, you know, my own story, which, which obviously I set out in belonging was my father passed away when I was five. He was part English and part Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand where I grew up. And I think one of the things I'm very, very grateful for is, you know, when I was about 12, the Maori tribe um, put their arms around me really and explained that, you know, we know who you are, you know, you belong here and we want you to understand this spiritual idea uh, in Polynesia called wakapapa, um, W-H-A-K-A-P-A-P-A. And what they said was the way you should understand your relationship with your father and others who came before you and come after you is that you are one person in a line of people that goes back to our origin story. And all the people that came before you uh, have their arms interlocked with each other. But you're also part of a line of people that go into the future, the very end of time. And your arms are also interlocked with those who will come after you. And what you just need to understand is that the sun first shone on the origin story. And it just slowly moves down this line of people. And you've always belonged here. We've all, you've always been part of this community, whatever it is. It could be a nation. It could be a school. It could be a family, of course. Whatever community it is. You've always been part of this and you always will be part of it. There's an immortality that goes with belonging. But you also need to understand that the sun will only shine on you for a period of time. And then it will move from you. And so when the sun is shining on you, it's important to understand the identity and the values and the purpose of the community you belong to and try and live and bring um, respect and pride to that whilst the sun is shining on you. And also to make sure that the people who come after you, you've signed the conditions for them to be successful. So I was, I was extremely great. I was only 12 years old and and all this grieving that I'd done around my father and the sense of loss, all of a sudden, it was sort of replaced by probably quite a euphoric feeling of belonging and immortality. <laughs> quite amazing, really. So grieving is, yeah, it sucks uh, to use your language. Um, and it hurts right now with my father-in-law, but at the same time from a spiritual or philosophical point of view, I'm at peace with it. And I also understand, although the son has moved off him, it's moving off me all the time. And, onto, and more onto my children and, and then ultimately the people who come after them. So I'm okay with that. And I think it is actually quite motivating having a sense of impermanence. You know, there are things that are bigger than us, first of all. And secondly, we need to have a bit of energy here and get things done. Um, So that's where I sort of come out with it.
0: I was recently with someone who had just lost his dad, someone else. And they said to me, because my dad fortunately is still alive and we've got a great relationship, but they said to me, what they didn't realize until their dad passed was that their relationship with their dad continued to evolve after his dad was gone. Um, mm-hmm. As you think about the last week, as you're in reflection about your father-in-law sounds like just a wonderful man. Yeah. Um, how has your relationship with him
1: changed over the last six days? Well, that's a beautiful question. It really is. Um, it actually, I feel like it has in a, in a genuine way, not in a corny way. Like for example, I'm in the world of, you know, high-performing teams. I work sort of half in sport with often national teams, definitely professional teams, and, some, and, and half in corporate leadership teams. And, you know, I'm surrounded by alphas and highly motivated people with big egos and big ambitions and all the rest of it. So I'm used to that. That's my working environment. But when I reflect on my, my father-in-law, Tony, he had no personal ambition. He had no ego that I ever saw. His whole life was around making sure that the people he loved and cared about were taken care of as secure as he could help them be and were pointed in the right direction. He was a complete non micromanager. He didn't come up to me and tell me, give me advice unsolicited, <laughs> never anything like that. But, and the same with his grandchildren, my children, but he always wanted to be sure that you're pointed in the right direction from a moral point of view and from a motivational point of view and and uh, relationally. and and if you were, he would just give you a big smile. He was happy. And you know I think that the, the, I just have been reflecting on the contrast between his way. And he, when he passed, he couldn't have been more contented in his life and also his relationships with the main people could not have been in a better place. Yet he had no ego and no personal ambition. <laughs> so I, I'm just sort of checking myself around that as to how humble I am in, in his sense and where my ego was perhaps getting in the road of being selfless. I'm just checking that. I haven't got an answer to that yet. And secondly, I had a good chat to my son. And I just said, you know, we have been gifted a incredible role model and reference point for what a gentleman is, you know, what someone is really, really um, got beautifully high standards um, and lives them every day in incredible consistency. We've been gifted that, and it's up to us now to step up. The son's moved off him, and it's on to you and me now, and we need to be that type of person for our family. Um, so I think in that way he will continue to guide us from a sort of behavioral point of view as well. It's
0: interesting. A friend recently reached out to me and said, he asked me, Hey, Brian, what's my superpower? It's like, wow, that's a pretty cool question. Um, and I shared what I thought it was. Um, this person actually has multiple superpowers, but I shared one and after it, I said, you know what, well, what do you think mine is? And, He said, well, you're really good at solving, you know, helping people solve complex issues. And I was like, oh, that's like a cool answer. And then he, he said, but really what I think your superpower is that you're a really great friend. And this is someone who's become a friend, Mm -hmm. but really from a professional standpoint. And I was like, wow, a friend. And I started reflecting on it and um, it sort of caught me off guard that that's where he went. Um, and I thought about it and I reflected on it a little bit and I was like, wow, well, the first part is what I get paid for, right? Like helping people solve complex challenges and helping them grow. And, you know, I know I'm in a similar space to you from a high performance standpoint. But I thought about the second part, like a friend, that's kind of more a part of my identity. That is like who I strive to be for people. And I actually think the friendships that I've been able to to create the relationships I've been able to create helps me be better at what I do in solving complex challenges with people. Um, but then I got even more reflective from a macro standpoint and started wondering, why is it that my focus is often on the first part, like helping people and adding value to them professionally, but I don't always talk about my desire to really value that other part of being just a great friend. And like, why is it that I overemphasize overemphasize success on the professional level, but not on the relational level personally. Um, And so it's just gotten me like thinking about that. Like, wouldn't that be the ultimate superpower? Like this person was a great friend. And it sounds like as I'm listening to your father-in-law, I was like, he was there for people like, in. Not a do this, do that way. He was there, he had their back. He would check them if they needed to be checked. Um, any thoughts on all that? Because it's it's something I've been reflecting on a little bit.
1: Well, absolutely. I actually think there's a direct line between what you're talking about there and, and great leadership. And that is, and I mean what that feedback from your friend essentially was is that you're great at relationships. You know, when someone says to you you're, you know, a super strength of yours is is friendship and being a friend. To me, that's what they're saying, is you're great at relationships. Now, I firmly believe, not only from a um, you know sort of philosophical point of view, but from an actual evidential point of view, that the best leaders are ones who build out from having relationships with the people they're responsible for. So the way I think about it is that if you are good at relationships or great at relationships, that ultimately allows you to influence people in a profound way more than if you can just shelter them or scare them or put a fear of punishment or jeopardy into them because you're in a hierarchically higher position so that's the type of leadership that i believe in and you know you know it. if, if someone's a good friend and my father-in-law was just a was a great you know Um, person in my life when he made a small comment it had a profound impact on me because I had so much respect for him we had so much of a strong relationship he knew me that when he made a comment it would really influence me if he made any sort of gave me any advice I, I think I'd always follow it because of that what it was built upon rather than some sort of you know other type of leader or person who's full of themselves and is telling everybody what they should do and just walks around with the map of the world according to their own preferences and is telling people to comply with it. So, you know, in the work that you do, I mean, I'm a coach, you're a coach. To me, that is great coaching. It's built on really powerful relationships. It's not trying to force something on somebody, but it's getting yourself in a trusted position to influence them.
0: You know, I know you went on Michael Gervais podcast and I recently listened to one of his podcasts with, with another coach and they were having almost a debate. Some might call it an argument as far as working from the inside out versus the outside in. And as I'm hearing you talk, that word influence is I think you used it a few times there. And I, I, one of the things I've been wrestling with is the idea of inside out versus outside in. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be a versus. And I think sometimes we pin them against each other. Like humans work from the inside out, which suggests that, you know your environment isn't actually dictating how you show up whereas the outside in is suggesting that your environment greatly impacts how you show up from the inside at least that's how i've come to understand it as you think about that framework and and how humans show up how do you make sense of working from the inside out compared to the outside in
1: yeah i really enjoyed that interview that was michael and uh, Marshall Goldsmith, and it was it was it was quite easy, wasn't it? It was uh... yeah.
0: What like I didn't know what to make of that interview. And so Marshall, for those that don't know, you know, I wouldn't say he's low on ego. I think he would probably say he's high on ego, and he'd probably own that. And doesn't mince words. He basically was saying to Mike, hey, like give advice to people if if they're there for you, they're there to get answers and solutions. And Mike, his point point was like, our job is to be more of a Sherpa as a coach or a psychologist and to ask questions and everything that they need is already inside of them. Yeah. Put yourself into that because it was, to your point, I enjoyed it, but it also was like, made me mm. cringe at times. Like I think arguing on a podcast can be painful, <laughs> but perhaps that's what's needed. And perhaps those emotions are actually what helps people remember it. Um, so yeah. What are what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I'd encourage people to listen to it because Marshall Goldsmith is extremely famous um, corporate executive coach and Michael Gervais is completely world-class as a performance psychologist. So I think part of the angst around the interview or that part of it was simply the way Marshall challenged Michael was probably quite disrespectful. Um, he, you know, he was quite aggressive and in, in disagreeing with Michael's approach. And I think that caused the edge. I think me you and I are probably in the same place. I think good coaching actually, you're toggling in and out of these things all the time. I, I agree. Like what Michael was sort of saying was it's not my job to, when I'm coaching somebody or when he's counseling somebody to tell them this is the truth and you need to figure it out and and follow it. Um it's to actually go on a real journey with them to get them to articulate, you know, who they are and what they believe in and what they want to achieve. It's hard to disagree with that. I think what Marshall was also saying was, you know, I have a lot of experience. He's probably got like 50 years of experience. He's been rated the number one corporate coach in the world, or whatever. And so, when people pay for my time, they don't want me to go wandering, holding hands into the meadows to find out, you know, what's in their inner soul. They actually want me to to help identify these are the important things, and I'm going to kick you up the butt if you're not. You know, living them or or, or etc. So part of Marshall's methodology is that he would interview thirty people around um, that individual he's coaching and give them very direct feedback based on that, and and be probably um, but judgmental around th- things. So I, th- I thought, but I think both of them are right to a degree. Like I don't definitely don't believe in being prescriptive and telling people what they should and shouldn't do. But I actually do believe in getting really rich data, including feedback from the the system that they're in and the people they influence and feeding it back to them. And you know, in the, in the coaching that I do, if someone hasn't got a vision of exactly what it is they're trying to achieve, then I'll call them out on that. If people may have a vision of what the team or organization is trying to achieve, but they actually aren't crystal clear on how they lead that, I'll call them out on that um so you'd you'd be surprised how many times people actually have an idea of what they want to achieve a vision but they actually don't have a coherent strategy of how to do it it's it's sort of either ad hoc or they're just basically continuing what they've done in the past so i'll call them out on that the way that they put design the culture or lack of design you know are, are they really intentional Um, around the environment they want that will bring out the best in people or is it all a little bit loose and fluid and not really anchored um, amongst great beliefs? If that's the case, I'll call them out on that. So I think probably you and I operate in between those two worlds. I think the angst there was more just the way that they possibly didn't show respect for each other's approach and the way they communicated and then that took a bit of work to fix.
0: Yeah, to your point, it was kind of beautiful to hear two I think brilliant minds show some imperfections perhaps. And yeah. I think we all have imperfections and um, you know, conflict is an interesting opportunity for us to also learn and grow. And so for us to be able to pull up a seat and, and listen as that conversation is going on, I mm. felt, I felt honored to be able to do it. I want to just go back to that inside out, outside in um, framework. Um, And just to zoom in on it. And then we're definitely going to talk about vision because that was something that was sticking out to me clearly when I was researching for this conversation. Uh, How do you think about inside out and how do you think about outside in as it relates to high performance?
1: You know, I, I actually did executive coaching early in my career, but now I don't do that. I'm a, I'm a performance coach. And I'm focused on the team or organizations (laughs) performance, not an individuals. So to answer your question, I didn't find it personally that fulfilling or enjoyable just helping one individual be the best version of themselves. That might sound horrendous. Uh, I hope it doesn't, but what, what has always motivated me is what a team or a community are trying to achieve. And so to me, the, the leaders are a means to that end. They are not the ends in itself. And I found with executive coaching, um, I would rather have deployed my time and checking how the team and organization is progressing from a performance and, comp- and competitiveness point of view than asking how the individuals, you know, getting on at home and, 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 and things like that. So that's how I look, you know, I enjoy working with leaders and we get deep into it, but it's always from the performance of what does this team need from you? And I'm checking in on that. I'm getting feedback within the system, within the, you know, and in, in, inside and outside, And I'm just trying to make sure they're in the optimal position to lead this team. Now, there will be times where they're having possibly well-being challenges of their own and the relational issues which are outside of the team is affecting them. So, yeah, I mean, you're a trusted advisor and so you would go there. But it's always motivated by ultimately the team needs this leader in the best shape possible. Um, so that's where I'm coming at it from. So I, that, that, that's for me. I, I'm from, you know, the Polynesian part of my upbringing. It's a very traditional society, and in those societies, if you want to come into a, a traditional society in Africa or Asia or Polynesia, and you ask an individual what's your personal purpose in life, people will give you a blank look, because the way you are, you know, brought up is that your role in life is to help your family your neighborhood your school your community your church succeed so whatever you, your purpose is what they need from you in this moment in time and so that is a big part of how i feel um and i i personally can't give you any purpose i have outside of those groups that i feel deep sense of belonging to
0: It's interesting because I'm American, you know, brought up in the States and I think most people around the world, this would be an assumption, but I think pretty accurate to see America as this individualistic uh, country where you can go and make your dreams and, um, you know, maybe there's more focus on the individual than than the team. But I've been actually reflecting on that a lot lately and I think it might be kind of a fallacy. Um, Maybe perhaps we're more... Than other cultures but i think about edison involving the, inventing the light bulb you know a team of 30 plus people working on it and i think we sometimes think of the lone genius uh the steve jobs but there's always a team and you know mm-hmm. you even study jobs it's like when he was too individualistic he had to get kicked out of the tribe but then he came back like why did he come back um and so reading your book and and looking into your work I think there's almost this misconception within the U S that it's individualistic because no one gets to where they are without a team. And, and I, you even bring up the church and regardless of what people think about religion, you know, I think there is a value in feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And as we become less religious as a society, there are some challenges that come with that. There are probably some benefits that come with it too. Um, But I've been thinking more about just cultures and you mentioned sort of some of the Polynesian uh, impact and and what that's helped you help shape your identity from the outside looking in. How do you think about the U.S.? Do you think about it um, individually? Do you think about it more from a team standpoint? What are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? And obviously, we're generalizing a whole country, which has all kinds of different micro tribes within it. But I'm just curious to get your perspective.
1: Well, no, that's a great point. I, I, I've always loved America. I've spent quite a bit of time there over the years um, and I agree. I agree with you. It's a, possibly the paradox there. It's seen as the most individualistic um, country in the world in many ways and individualism. But on the other hand, it's probably got some of the most powerful examples of teaming and um, community and identity. And you know, I think what's happening at the moment at a high-level political level is there's a bit of an us in them. Maybe in the past there's been a bit more coherence around the us of the USA. Now it seems to be a division there, which is being fed politically. But that just shows actually how people do want to be part of a, a community and around people who share an identity with them, and they get very irate when people stand for something against it these are all conditions of, of being human beings. It's not about America. This is part of being a human being is we have a need to belong. You know, the, the evolutionary reason for that, you know, which I was taught by Oxford university over here was is simply that, you know, 3 million years ago, when our ancestors left the forests and went into the open grasslands, they needed to work as a team and, um, in a way they never had before. Um, not, a, not just in terms of hunting, which had to, which, which because of our physiological disadvantages had to be a team effort rather than an individual effort, but also just taking care of the young and the old in an environment where there are more predators than there were in the forests. You actually had to work as a team to make sure that was work that security was there. And that's become part of our condition. Last year, there's a company in New York um, human, Uh, sorry, Sapien Labs, they do the annual world mental health report. And they found from memory, they found that the most vulnerable group in the world at the moment, and this is across, I think, nearly 200 countries, is I think like age groups, is it like 16 to 24, that age group, that they were the ones who had suffered the most deterioration in their mental health in the last couple of years. And when they went underneath the reasons for that, the one that stood out was that was belonging was that that group feels less deep connection to groups and teams and communities and their belonging is being fulfilled through social media where it is obviously um weaker um less substantive and transient isn't it you know when you are part of a community on whatsapp or instagram or facebook versus what we've traditionally had in our lives so this isn't really about being american or or english or new zealand or whatever it's a universal human condition to belong and there's plenty of evidence of that in the states but it is under threat without a doubt these traditional ties are weakening and the social media just can't replace it in the way that it sets up groups of people
0: do we do we need a them to have an us like do we need to have an opponent to feel a sense of belonging
1: there's a there's actually interesting historical reasons why we us needed a them um you know it, 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 when there's a them it does highlight what we share as a community so it actually has a we have a hormonal reaction that we have more oxytocin and dopamine in our system when we see people over there are different so there's there's, there's all those sorts of reasons but to answer your question no i, I think part of the human journey hopefully is that we're going to mature away from this even in the sports teams that i coach um and work with you know 10 20 years ago before you would play and you know um england would play scotland or, or or these big rivalries there would be a big motivational talk around you know we hate them and this is all about us and all this history of animosity and all and that would be part of the motivation. I don't see that anymore. Like, I don't hear coaches talking like that. And in fact, I worked with the South African cricket team, um, had a wonderful time with them. And for a long period of time, you know, we were world number one team. And the captain at the time, Hashim Mamla, was the first Muslim captain of, in South Africa. And he, he actually would, when he would do a team talk, he would explain that this game we're going to embark upon I want everyone here to have a sense of love for our opponent because they are just like us. They are motivated. They represent a different group of people, but they want to do well. They want to make them proud. They want to make them feel good. They're just exactly like us. But also we've been given all this talent and all this skill and this opportunity, but we can't express it without them. So we thank them. When we look at them, I want you to to be grateful for them and I want you to be thankful for them. And, we will go out and do our very best for the people that we represent and understand they're doing the same thing. And any stuff about them being bad people and and all these sorts of things is just complete BS. So actually, just even in my career as a performance coach, I've seen a real shift away from, quite frankly, some stupid ideas around us and them to a real maturation around that. And if we could pick up that on a more of a macro level in society, that would be a very cool.
0: Yeah, if we bring it to the corporate world cuz I know you play in that space too. I think it was Simon Sinek who was talking about Apple and how Apple would always focus on their innovation and what they want to do. Now, some other organizations were always focused on Apple and like the idea of hey, let's figure out what we need to do and how we need to do it and and you know, we need our opponents to be at our best. Like we we need competition. It's usually what what helps us get to be our best. But I'm thinking about where we're at as we record this in, in 2022 where companies and organizations are trying to figure out you know do we come into the office do we work remote how do we do it giving people a sense of autonomy which i think human beings very much crave as well while also having them feel like they're part of something um how do you make sense of autonomy and the freedom to maybe work from your home and, and not Connect with people at the water cooler, so to speak, um compared to what we used to do, which is like, "Hey, you're always coming in." You know, you're you have to, you know, punch the clock, so to speak. Uh, how do you make sense of autonomy and belonging, and and what companies are doing, and and how they can navigate a a world where we've got technology now that allows us to connect in ways like we are right now?
1: Well, I think the reality for me is that we're going to have a hybrid way of working going forward, and but. You know, some organizations are sort of fiddling around, trying to work out and not upset people and and balance it. But I've seen other organizations who actually have a very set point of view on what is the optimal um, um, positioning. And I, I think about it through the lens of energy. You know, if we have everybody dispersed and not physically together, we actually diminish our energy. I don't think there's any argument about that. You can measure these things. Um. And so, therefore, we have to create a space where we are physically together and talking about the right things. There's no point us all just being physically together and in cubicles beside each other. Um, You know, the things I'm enjoying is seeing is that when you know, if there's three anchor days where everyone would be expected to be physically together in the office, then actually they've reset those days so that we have a meeting. We meet in a circle. There's a you know, there's a big picture storytelling that maybe never happened before there's also the one-on-one feedback time happens what you know in, in a much more intentional way than it has in the past so people are you know there's one thing is getting physically together but then secondly is to maximize that time by doing communal connected things where we are getting energy not just physically being in the same space but I, I think one thing people also miss is that even when people are you know, working from home, there's a hell of a lot we can do from a relational, from a um, belonging point of view. Um, and I saw it during COVID um, lockdown. You know, leaders are able to actually get thousands of people. I've done some work with Accenture, it's 600,000 people there. So leaders are able to get a lot of people in one space and say, hey, you guys are working your butts off. Um, I want to just take a bit of time to respect that and to note it. But also, let's all get together. Let's get around the fire and let's tell you this is what's happening. I know you've heard about the war in Ukraine. I know you've heard about inflation. I know you hear about all this. So just, just from where we are, how we're navigating the world, I'm going to give you a big picture story about where we're at. And then moving, transcending into the vision. This is actually what we believe we can do in the next 6, 12, um, 36 months. And that is energizing people. Literally, again, dopamine, oxytocin, you're getting a real boost there when someone, even if it's virtually, taking time out to tell the story, to paint those mental pictures of what successes could look like, and also to say, hey, Brian, let's come a one-on-one. I, I know you just finished that project. I thought that was awesome. I reckon there's a couple of learning pieces for, for all of us from that. I've, I've got a few notes. Can we make some time? So this is stuff that may not have been done in the past, but then you know even if you're not in the office, you can still have that quality forty five minute session where you get really rich feedback and have a proper conversation and actually learn something. So we can do both, we can do both.
0: I think there's such a unique opportunity right now because I trust me, I've been recording podcasts now. this is almost six years. The technology today, compared to six years ago, is night and day. And even to have this conversation yeah. with you was, drastically harder in 2016, 2017. And so there's a huge opportunity to leverage the technology to be more efficient with our time, to be more thoughtful with our time. And to me, where I see this going, I love how you said anchor. It's like, all right, what are our anchors? Maybe it's three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. We want you in the office. We're going to have you know, strategy meetings. We're really going to take advantage of that time together to problem solve, to whiteboard, whatever it might be and then we're also going to give you the autonomy on monday and friday you're you're an adult like we yeah. trust that you're going to get your work done and we're not going to be looking over your shoulder and that's for executing and let's really make sure you're leveraging that and i'm this is obviously just a generalistic game plan and then once a month let's do an offsite like let's yeah. go into the woods like you said let's go around a fire like i hosted two retreats in the last week one was in the mountains in the woods um and the other was in a conference room at a resort and i got to tell you both were highly effective because the focus of both of them were not just on professional growth, but when I asked the people what they wanted to get out of it, they wanted to get a sense of belonging. They wanted to connect with their people, not just professionally, but also personally. And so there's this massive opportunity where we could take advantage of an offsite in a way that maybe we didn't before. And I say monthly, but heck, it could be quarterly. It doesn't matter what the tempo is, but let's take advantage of that. Let's take advantage of giving people some autonomy to work from home if they choose to do that. And then let's also be more efficient with our meetings, which we know a lot of people have meetings for the sake of meetings and they're not actually all that effective but if we anchor them i think there's a tremendous possibility now that didn't exist a few years ago because people didn't know it was possible they didn't they, this was a forcing function for many organizations mm-hmm. to see what they could actually do from an efficiency standpoint but i'm worried that there's a lack of belonging when they say just go remote and people are just you know working and malcolm gladwell got criticized because he was like you know you can't work from home. You need to be in the office. I think anytime you talk about absolutes, you run into an issue in in life. Um, but there is an amazing blend of autonomy and belonging. All of these things, like self determination theory, has been around for a long time, and it suggests like three elements to lead, to determine individuals competence. Like you're good at what you do uh, autonomy. You have the freedom to make decisions um, and then relatedness, which is, I think in alignment with belonging. So I just went on a little bit of a rant, um, but you, know, <laughs> you sparked it uh, from me, at least.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, that's a big part of my compass around all of that. And the autonomy is really, really powerful in but it has to be in balance with um, connection to, the team and the, what the team's pursuit is. And so, it's, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a matter of, but I, I think it's having some intent around this and and, and a, a point of view on it. I think what would be really tragic is if all the, um, you know, experiences we've had during the lockdowns, et cetera, we just sort of forget about all that and either either revert to what we did before or just sort of, you know, incrementally, Add on a, one or two pieces to what ended up at the end of the lockdown. I think that we've, you know, some of the teams that I work with, what happened was during the lockdown, people would actually check in on people's well being, their energy, their mood. And, and, and a couple of teams, and I'm, I'm working with, what I like is that now we're beyond that. They still have a ritual at the start of those um, gatherings and they just check in on each other's well being, mood, and energy and they score them out of 10. And that's how they start the connection time before they get into a leadership meeting. So, things like that, I think, are, are really important. But you've got to be intentional around doing that. Otherwise, they just get lost. What were the really, really powerful learnings we can glean from that experience and make sure we sort of bake them in?
0: You mentioned energy. When we do Zoom experiences, workshops, we always start with music. And It's amazing how you just see people like smiling and dancing and and music is an amazing energy and answer. Um, But vision. So when I went onto your LinkedIn page, uh, your whole about was what you were looking forward to in 2022. Um, So can you talk about how you use visioning for yourself and then also how you bring that to the teams that you work with?
1: Yeah, to me, this might sound a bit unorthodox, but Vision is, you know, under, under, you understand your purpose, you articulate it, but then you visualize what the hell that would look like if you did it brilliantly well. And so I do, on a personal level, I've got an idea of the type of coach I want to be and the type of impact I want to have. And I actually really enjoy just taking time out just to imagine. And it's not stuff that I would generally share. Um, but it's incredible. I can tell you, it's incredible the correlation between some of those things I imagine I'll be doing and what actually transpires over the next few years. I mean, I can't explain it other than a real focused energy. But there's certain certain teams I've wanted to work with, certain leaders I've wanted to work with, and quite mate, And I've had no connection to them. And within a couple of years after having visioned it, I don't. Know, I still can't really explain it, but I end up working with them. So I I really think it's very profound. I think science can explain it, but I think there's more to it than we probably understand and appreciate. There is a, there is a focus of energy that is incredible, but I think it's exactly the same with teams. Um, The teams I see that really visualize with some real detail and and in a three-dimensional way being successful. And that's not just the outcome, like picking up a trophy or making a billion dollars or whatever. It's, it's much richer and deeper than that. It's like, What would be the environment that we would create in order to enable that to happen? Like really get into that, really get into that. Also, if we are really, really successful, we achieve this goal, what would it be like for us? How would it change our lives, but also our families, how would it affect them and the people around? So we actually, we get into it. Um, How would it, what would the industry say about us? If, If we, if we, play out this purpose and and we set these um, set a mission for ourselves and we achieve it. What would the industry say? Would they say that was great? Or would they say that we changed the way things are done? Would they say that we're radicals? What would they say? So we just use our imagination and play around. So what, how would people perceive us? And then in 10, 20 years time, what would people remember about us? And, you know, when we've finished this exercise together, how would we be different than when we started it together? And we get people to personally think about that. Are they better leaders? Are they better people? What What have they learned here? What, what have they... All of these things. So it's not common in the corporate area as much as in some other areas, but it's certainly, a, to me... When you do that well, every piece of work, every single day is a step trying to bring that to life. But if you don't have those visions and those pictures of exactly what it is you're trying to achieve, then to me, you can easily get a bit lost and disconnected from each other and lose alignment amongst people.
0: It's interesting as I think about our conversation up until now, there was a focus on the past, whether it was talking about your father-in-law or ancestry or this sense that we're always part of something and that's not going to go away. And so there's like history and the value of history and our past. And now we're talking about the future. All right. Where is it that we want to go? What is it that we want to do? What is the process that can enable us to get there? And I'll just bring up Mike Gervais again, because he talks about the present and he talks about being where your feet are and always focus on the present for you. How does the past the present, the future, how do those interplay with each other? Because we haven't really talked about the present. We've been focused on, all right, where are we trying to go? Where have we been? How do you think about the idea of, of the present?
1: No, that's a really cool question. And actually, it is all about the present because the sun is shining on you and I, my friend. Okay, that, that There is nothing more present than that. The sun was shining on people before us and it will shine on people after us. But right now it's shining on us. So in order for you to anchor yourself into a meaningful life, you want to understand what it is that you belong to, what the story is so far. And it doesn't have to be a highlights package. It can be a story of underachievement and compromise standards and all sorts of things. depends what group and organization we're part of. But we do need to understand that. And then what we need to do in the present is work out what is it, the impact that we want to have, and ultimately the legacy that we will leave. So th- this idea of waka papa, this, this Polynesian idea, actually the way it was taught to me was that the past, the, the present and the future are only one thing. But what are you doing when the sun is shining on you? And you should be a guardian for the things that you are part of, okay and act in that way in order to be a good guardian you need to understand exactly what it is you've inherited but your work needs to be about taking opportunities in front of us today and building the conditions for the people who come after you to be successful so i i really in my mind they're all the same thing the past the present the future as just one way of being and i don't compartmentalize them you know I, i know i talk about visioning okay so that is looking forward and I know I talk about Waka and other things about our heritage. That's fine. But to me, they all add up to the same thing is that this is just a line of people, which we're part of. We've got a responsibility to make it strong and make it sustainable. And while the sun's shining on us, that's what our job is. What do you think about legacy? I, I think it's a, it's a quite a nice word to, um, to reflect on, you know, it's what you do when the sun was shining on you, that is your legacy. That's how I understand it. So if when the sun is shining on you and I, we decide to neglect our families, neglect other communities we belong to, try and make as much money as we can, trying to have the biggest house we can buy, try and do all these material things, then in in the society that I'm part of, no matter how much money we make and all these other things, our legacy will be one of selfishness. Whilst, like my father-in-law I referenced, he's left an incredible legacy in our family, which will never be forgotten because he had no ego, no greed, no selfishness, but he just every day was creating the conditions for those he cared about to be able to thrive. So he put other people before himself, and that was, is his legacy. So I suppose in many ways we can choose what type of legacy we want to leave.
0: It's really cool because when I even use that word, I think of James Kerr's book, and I know he blurred yep. your book. And I always struggled. I Book's spectacular, but I've always struggled with that word for me because I think I've always connected it almost to like fame. And mm. when I hear you talk about it, I hear about it, character and um and the reason i've always struggled with it is because i'm like will my great 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 grandparent great grandkids know about me i don't think so i don't know about mine and maybe that's my own ignorance but i think most people don't really know what someone did 200 years ago in their family and so my head starts to come in and be like dude it's you you got one shot at life like just be a good person and just be Mm -hmm. a good human And, but what's cool about what you connected it to is like, no, the legacy is about those relationships you have with the people that really know you more so than maybe the reputation of what you did for a living. It's like, no, the character with which you lived for the people you touched. And that to me is way more digestible and honestly, way more inspiring. Um, Like I've always said, I know why reputation matters for a leader in an organization like Accenture uh, because you have influence and your reputation matters. But I've always been more drawn to character because that's actually who you are and how you operate. And reputation is how someone else views you and you can't really control it. And so legacy for me has always been in the same vein, which is like, I can't really control how people are going to view me, um, but I can control how interact with this stranger do i hold the door for them do i say thank you do i look them in the eye and help them be seen like those are the things that i really genuinely care about you've got me now connecting character to legacy in a way that i think i hadn't really thought of before this conversation
1: well well we're on the same page you know i it's not about being famous it's not about being having your name engraved and things that's not what legacy is to me. It is how the people that you, you connected to um, ultimately judge you, I suppose. And I, I actually had a great conversation once with a, a very famous coach. And this famous coach had actually won just about all the silver all the trophies he could have in his sport. And so I, I actually asked him the question. I just said, you know, well, what's your ultimate legacy then? Because he was getting towards the end of his career. So what's your ultimate legacy? And what he said to me was, my ultimate legacy will be in 20 years' time when I'm walking down the street and an athlete that I coached is walking the other way and they see me, they will look at me, they'll smile and come and hug me. They won't see me and then cross the other side of the road road, hoping I don't recognize them. He said, that is my legacy. I want the people that I worked with and had shared experiences with to think I was a good person who helped them in their life. And this was someone who could point at any trophy you wanted to. That is a capturing. He didn't. He could have said, I want to be the greatest coach ever. I want to win the most championships. He never said anything like that. And and to me, that is the type of person I'd want to be led by.
0: I have to ask you about psychological safety because i think about those types of people where the person would run across the street and give them a hug um i i I wonder about amy edmondson's work on psychological safety and how that plays with belonging and you know for those that are part of teams having psychological safety there's a big study at google that found that that's what that was the number one factor in high performing teams and so as I was thinking about your work on belonging, I, I wanted to double click on on psychological safety and how you think about it, how can it how it can be created and how much you value it. So talk a little bit about that and how that could underpin a sense of belonging on a team or, or maybe not as well.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely essential element of a high performing environment that there's psychological safety and not because it's a nice, cute, fluffy expression at all. It's very more pragmatic from my point of view. I don't believe you can have a high-performing environment if people are in that team or organization and they don't feel safe where they put their hand up and say, hey, manager, hey, leader, I don't actually 100% understand exactly what you're asking of me. If they, if they don't feel they can safely get clarity we've got a big, big problem here. Or if we have people who feel this environment is actually handicapping me, I cannot perform to my best in this environment. But they can't put their hand up and say, hey, uh, if we can shift a couple of things here, I think I'm going to make an unbelievable contribution. But right now there's a couple of things in this environment which are just holding me back and I need to tell you about so that that's the degree of psychological safety is absolutely critical for me. And if that doesn't exist, then I don't think anyone should be calling themselves a high-performing environment or a high-performing leader. Um, in terms of belonging, belonging helps, but it doesn't get you all the way home. You know, if psychological safety is very interrelated to the idea of trust. If you feel you belong in an environment, you're going to have less anxiety. You're going to feel like you've got a shared identity with the people around you rather than just a group of individuals thrown together who, who are disconnected. So that all helps. Having a sense of belonging in a group with a shared identity, that does help build the trust and the psychological safety, But it doesn't get you all the way there. You know, the, the critical thing really is going to be how the leaders behave, um, what the micro signals are and the micro cues are on a day-to-day basis. I mean, just examples as well. I remember, you know, working with, I'll use sports as an example, where the coaches talk like, we want everyone to express themselves. We want you to take risks on the field. If there's an opportunity, go for it. You know, so all this great sort of talk around, we're giving you autonomy. We want you to express yourself. We want you to be empowered. And then on the Monday morning, when they're reviewing the game, these mistakes have happened on the field where people did exactly that. They took a risk. They tried to express themselves. It didn't come off. And in front of the whole team, the video screen, there's social shaming takes place where, hey, if you just had held held onto the ball there, they wouldn't have got the turnover and we would have been in a great position, da, 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 da. And I've had athletes talk to me and say that this is BS. This is not a safe place because I was told one thing, but actually the behaviours of the leaders when things didn't go well were the opposite. They started to point the finger, shame us. So this isn't a safe place to express yourself and take risks. So all of that stuff. I, I you know, when I go into an environment, I'm got a real, real attention to detail beyond the grand statements of the leaders. What are the cues in the environment around what happens to people? Who take risks, who express a lack of clarity around their role, or express the need to improve their skill set to achieve something. And if it's negative, that is going to be something I to have to put attention to. I did my thesis
0: when I went to grad school for sports psychology on home advantage in professional basketball. And I was fortunate huh. to interview NBA players and get their perspective on playing at home versus playing on the road. And most of the players talked about the advantages of playing at home, whether it was the fans or being in their comfortable environment or uh, maybe the refs being biased at home. There are all these theories. Um, The one thing that stood out was actually they would say the messaging from the coaches was different at home versus on the road at home. It was go be aggressive, go take it to them, um, you know, play fast, play free, whereas on the road, it was try to steal a game. And let's try to steal it, take care of the ball, be more safe, um, be more conservative. But there was one player who said, I played better on the road. And he said, look up my numbers. And I did. And he played better on the road. And this guy played in the NBA forever, made a ton of money, um, a great, great player. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, at home, I have to take care of all my family, make sure they have tickets. I have friends that have to be taken care of. Um, you know, my diet is harder to control. Whereas on the road, actually, I, I order the same thing. I get to the hotel, I get two breasts of chicken, you know, some grains. And he's like, I, I do the same thing every time. And he said the last part, which was at home, they know how much money I'm making and there's added pressure to live up to the contract. Whereas on the road, I go in there, I'm like, I'm just going to shut up all these fans, watch what I'm going to do. Um, so his psychology was very different in, one environment compared to the other in a way that I hadn't thought of previously. And so I'm curious to like map my findings onto some of your theories and frameworks around this sense of belonging, because for him, he actually felt more a sense of we when he was in the opposing den, so to speak, compared to at home where he felt like, you know, maybe they were judging him and they were viewing him um, and they were observing and, and watching him um, any thoughts on that from, from your perspective and, and how that might play.
1: I, yeah, that's fascinating. I actually would think about it from a biological point of view. Some teams now actually do hormonal profiling. And in fact, it's not that invasive um, anymore. You don't have to take bloods just to do that. So to answer your question, I'd be really interesting in looking at the hormonal profiles of those players at when they play at home, versus when they play away because their their cortisol levels and adrenaline levels for example would be very different probably in those two scenarios and potentially you know all those other really key hormones as well oxytocin dopamine serotonin etc and as i said to you there are professional teams who do this and they become very aware of it and what and, and and to take it another step some athletes do perform better when they're basically marinating in cortisol, stress hormones, and adrenaline. They just do. Scared, you know, Because the, if you lose at home, there's a shaming element to that. There's, there is, although they are your supporters, there's a huge amount of expectation and quite harshness upon you, especially for those highly paid players. Whilst when you're away, as you say, you know the, the the home team's focus is on their team, their players. They don't care about you, so therefore your stress levels will be a lot lower. Now you know this: people in teams and organisations everywhere. You've got certain people who will perform at a higher degree when they are incredibly stressed, and others who actually have an adverse performance when they're in that state, and are much better when they're sort of in a much more relaxed place. So, you know, I think it's, that, that's going to happen actually in the next 10 years of teaming everywhere is we're going to get a bit better idea of people's different hormonal profiles and preferences. And some people have a high tolerance for very stressful environments and some people have a low environment. But what's historically happened is the ones who don't have a high tolerance get kicked out. What I believe in is that the ones who don't have a high tolerance, what we want to do is create the environment internally is safe and as relaxed for them as we can so they do have good energy and can perform
0: you can see that in sports sometimes where a guy who might have struggled in another environment comes into a new environment um, and actually performs quite well i'll use an example he's not a client i don't know him but like andrew wiggins coming from canada top pick in the draft i watched him play in high school he could do everything he was amazing um you know Mm. goes to the nba first pick Goes to Minnesota. Um, he's fine. He's pretty good. Um, ends up getting traded as part of a trade. Goes to Golden State, and really has been a massive, massive part of their success um, recently. And you know they've got uh, leadership in Steve Kerr and Bob Myers, our general manager, and then of course they've got a superstar. Use the word humble. I mean, Stephen Curry is a very rare NBA superstar because of his humility, uh, certainly off the court and as a leader. Um, and so they just have an interesting mix and you watch him really step into himself in a different way. That's as a fan, as an observer without any inside sort of basketball knowledge there. Um, but that that resonates with me. I want to close by bringing the light back to you. And we started really talking about you. And um, I wanted to just think about your perspective. So one of the things I struggle with, I remember when I got into working as you know a, a solo practitioner, my dad was someone who was a little concerned. He's like, Brian, you value relationships. You value friendships. I got an office and it was just me in that office. I didn't get an office with a bunch of other psychologists. And I could have, I could have gotten an office with, with other people, but I wanted privacy for my clients. And um you know, one of the things that I've always struggled with is a little bit of loneliness in my work. Um, I, I jump in and I can be part of a team and feel like I'm part of a team, but then I jump out and disassociate from it. And then I jump in and then I jump out. So like whenever I work with teams, I feel like I'm part of them, but I'm not quite in the foxhole. And I think for me, it actually keeps me healthy because if I was in the foxhole with all of them, I would drive myself nuts for you. You you study this stuff, you know how important belonging is. How do you create belonging when you're not with the teams you work with? When you're not in those environments, how do you create that sense for yourself?
1: Well, as you know, belonging is a is a psychological and biological state. It's it's not purely correlated how much hours you spend around other people. There are people who've worked in the same workplace for 20 years with the similar people and don't feel they belong there. They feel excluded, they don't feel they fit in, they don't feel seen. Um, so to answer your question, you know, I am very fortunate, maybe more now with my experiences, et cetera. But I um I work with about four or five different teams each year. Okay, so that's an intentional model. Um, And they like that because I can bring fresh ideas, fresh energy, fresh reference points to them that I wouldn't have if I was just stuck with them the whole time. And my sense of belonging comes from the way I'm treated when I'm in that environment and my sense you know, when I'm outside of it. So when people, and that sounds silly, but when I go into those environments like you do, people look you in the eye, they smile, they really are happy you are there. When you do your thing, you can tell just the way it's done is that they respect what you have to say. They are listening, and they are open-minded and open-hearted about how you can help them. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And I get a sense of belonging from all five teams that I would work with each year in different ways. And if I'm ever in an environment where I feel like they're going through the motions or I'm there to do session, you know to do, workshops but not actually help the day-to-day performance then I wouldn't feel that I'd feel very transactional and I'd get the hell out of there um, you know I've got a strong personal identity that I'm a coach that's my professional job but also I have the same mindset with my kids you know in terms of being a parent you know I want to coach them up um, I want them to figure out stuff as much as I can but I want to give them great stories and insights and reference points to help them So that's pretty solid the way how how I see my myself and I enjoy toggling between different environments. And it is a real privilege, I suppose, to feel a sense of belonging in each of them.
0: You mentioned transactional and your background. You also were a lawyer, I think, for 13 years. Um, Is that right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yep. 15 or something like that. 15 years. (laughs) I
0: I have yet to coach a lawyer and I've coached a lot of different um, industries and I ask, a, I'm in Washington, DC. We got a lot of lawyers running around the city. <laughs> and so when I first started doing the executive coaching work, I thought lawyers would be like the ideal clients. They're thoughtful, they're well educated, they're constantly learning and growing. And yet, when I have conversations about working with them, I find that that transactional environment that a lot of them are in doesn't lend itself to always focusing on their own growth. Doesn't mean they don't like to read the books, doesn't mean they don't like to listen to podcasts. But I find that that ecosystem or that environment is is somewhat transactional. Um, how did you find it when you were there? Did you have a sense of belonging? Did you still um feel like you had that there? um what What was that experience like for you for those fifteen years?
1: I actually really enjoyed being a lawyer, and I I became a partner in a law firm in London, which um, I still have a lot of affection for. If I'm looking at it objectively, the sense of belonging wasn't a profound one. Um, First of all, there wasn't a story of us. There wasn't a story of who we were. We actually had a pretty amazing history, but it was never told to anybody. Um, There was no induction around when you came in around connecting you to the story, connecting you to other people. It was very, that was transactional. There was no visioning about what the hell we're trying to do. Um, You know, each year we wanted to grow at 7.5% revenue, whatever the hell it was, but there was no mental pictures or visioning or aspiration of like, so what? I mean, what would, what would we, well, how would we be different in 12 months than we are now? How would we be different than other firms? Well, there's never any exploration of those things so there was nothing to anchor my identity to in terms of this is going to be an incredible experience um from a relational point of view there were some there were there was a tolerance of a lot of different types of behaviors put it that way um not everybody bought into the ethos of um being guardians, not everybody bought into ethos of actually mentoring and helping other people and, and or even being respectful, particularly to junior people. You know, it was very much you can just do your own thing and be yourself. Now, there were a lot of good people there. So they created a good environment, but there are other pockets where it wasn't the case. So none of those things, you know, that's not a shared identity when basically you can just turn up and manage people the way you want to. That's not a, that's not standing for something, is it? That's not anchoring this this experience of this community in anything, so that that's foreign to me. I didn't like you know I don't like that. So I think it was and and people I'll be brutally honest, but because it was a lack of vision and purpose, people were primarily motivated by maximising their financial outcome and reward. They just were. It Doesn't mean to say people were a holes because because most of them weren't, but but people that was the main thing. And so at the end of a year, the firm could miss its financial target but individuals would have exceeded theirs and therefore get a good bonus and they were happy. I mean, that to me is,
0: what's the reason you stayed there you stayed in that industry or in that field for 15 years? What kept you there?
1: I was an employment lawyer and I've always had a bit of a passion for what happens in the workplace. And you know, that translates into the work I do now. So I, I, I've always been a coach even as a kid, so what? what I, I wasn't a technically brilliant lawyer, to put it mildly, but w- something I was good at was taking people through very stressful situations, employees, but sometimes employers, where there was conflict, there was a breakdown in relationships, and there needed to be some form of resolution to it. That's the thing I was quite good at, was actually taking them through the human experience of getting to a resolution. Um, and uh, in all my years, we only went to court once in terms of a full outcome. Everything was negotiated, mediated, and resolved. That was my philosophy. So I enjoyed the work. Um, I was surrounded by good people in, in my proximity, but there are other people in the firm around who wouldn't want to be near. Um, so th- that was all fine. But so it was okay. And I actually have a passion for the law. And even now, you know, I, I still now I read, even though I've not practiced in the United States, I read Supreme Court decisions. I'm just finishing a very long book on the history of the Supreme Court. I read the recent decision overturning Roe and Wade. I read all 207 pages of it because I am interested in the law. I find it fascinating and trying to understand, you know, the reasons behind decisions. So yeah, I had a uh, uh, but coaching the opportunities that came that way took me away from practicing law, and now I can hopefully be a bit more impactful than I was in that role.
0: And if we were to zoom out, someone that's listening to this, let's just say they're a lawyer and they're at a firm and they don't feel a sense of belonging, they don't feel a sense of purpose or a vision, all the things that we've talked about, what do you say to them uh, if they're not in the environment that can unlock their ability to perform or, or to feel fulfillment? Uh, what, how, how would you message to them?
1: One of the first things I would do is reframe the experience of um, being a lawyer and particularly managing other people. Because to me, it's a sacred responsibility to manage and lead other people. And if you look at the history of humanity, that has always started with, if you're going to lead somebody, then you have a responsibility for their well-being. That has always been the way, whether it's a priest, a parent, um, a chief, whoever. So actually, you have a responsibility, and I'm going to look you in the eye and tell you, for the people that work with you and for you okay so let's start out is just reimagining what your working experience is by focusing on them so how do you bring the best out of them how do you progress them and make sure they get better how do you make sure they got good energy levels and that they're well and and then you know i would layer upon that what is it actually we're trying to achieve together if the firm doesn't articulate that then i'd encourage smaller pockets of the firm to start asking the same questions what what you know There's a financial target, fine. But what actually would success look like at the end of this year for us individually and collectively? What would we do? What would our relationship with our clients look like? What type of outcomes will we be going after? How would we all feel and our families feel at the end of this year? Are we going to be broken, exhausted, stressed, depressed, or is it going to be some other state? So I would take them away like you do with with your teams And just reimagine what success would be and work backwards from there.
0: It's interesting because we come back to that inside out, outside in. What I'm hearing now is like, okay, we need to change the environment, but it starts with us. Like, what can we do? How can we do it? Rather than just saying, you know what, our legal model is broken or our political model is broken or insurance is broken. And rather than thinking of an ecosystem that's broken, it's like, hey, what can we do working from the inside to the outside to create a container or an environment or an ecosystem that will help us function better and help us uh, feel a sense of belonging. And that's kind of a a unique perspective. I was expecting you to say like, yeah, there are certain ecosystems that are not going to work. You need to go find a place where you can fulfill your potential, so to speak. Um, But what I heard is like, oh, why can't you transform it from the inside out? Am I hearing that right?
1: Yeah, you are, because there's good research, which you'll be aware of, which is that high performers have an overwhelming focus on what they can control and are very, very good at turning the volume down on the things outside their control. So whenever I'm coaching, that's what we're doing. We're identifying what are the things that we have control or at least can influence and let's double down on them and stop all this excuses of what's happening in the macro environment, which is outside either our control or influence whether it's politics, whether it's the way that the legal profession has been run for a thousand years, whatever, just turn the noise down on that. What can we control and do? And, that, and, and that's where people get energized and motivated when they do that and perform at a high level. So yeah, that, that, that's consistent.
0: All right. To close, um, when, I, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the book Into the Wild and i was thinking about the movie into the wild if you haven't read the book yet or watch a movie i'm sorry we're gonna spoil it for you um but it's been out for a while and mm-hmm. i i think i read into the wild when i was in high school it's probably one of the few books i actually read i think it was like into the wild and ender's game every other book i wasn't really reading and most of the books in college i wasn't really reading either um but there's a scene at the end of into the wild where this young man who graduates from a a elite university and and goes on a individual search throughout the country and bounces around and sort of just disappears and 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 runs away, so to speak. Um, and the book is about the journey that he has, the movie is about the journey he has, but it ends with him, you know, about to die and um, you know, in this old broken down bus uh in the middle of nowhere in nature. And he writes, happiness only real when shared. And that has always stuck with me. Mm. And so I'm, I'm curious to just riff on happiness and how you think about it and how it relates to your work and and how you see things um, from, from your lens as well.
1: Yeah. Happiness isn't a word I use hugely. It's, I don't know, the, the idea of contentment is something that I probably focus on a bit more, but you know, we started this conversation. Hopefully, you know, listeners didn't find it too depressing. But we started talking a little bit about death, and I'll probably go back there to conclude if that's all right. Because just based on your question um, earlier this year, I, I was actually talking to the priest in our village. I live in a very small village in the Cotswolds area of England, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what prompted it, but we were having a chat, and I just asked him when people are at the end of their lives. What is it that they're focused on? And he did not miss a beat. He said the quality of their relationships always, always is what they think about when they're about to pass. And that's why, you know, when I started, I just, my, I talk about that contentment of my father-in-law because his, the quality of his relationships was a one. They were the highest level that you know, and he worked on that, and he he curated those things. So for me that, that, that you know and and when I talk to coaches and you know sometimes we sort of experiences where leaders treat people very, very poorly, very in a transactional way and then try and get someone in the team who can perform better. I honestly think that is not the soulful way to go around this, and I don't ultimately think it's going to benefit them either. So, I think if we're all sort of got a compass, which is North Star is quality of relationships, then I actually think that, that is a high performance. I also think it's going to make us happier and more content people.
0: That's a beautiful place for us to wrap. Owen, if people want to find out more about what you're up to, I know you're on LinkedIn, you're on Twitter. Obviously they can purchase and I highly recommend they do the book Belonging. Um, but where can people find you? Where, what's the best way for them to follow you?
1: yeah, it's probably it's probably something I want to do a little bit more of is be a bit more communicative. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, LinkedIn is where I is, probably would mainly spend time. I don't post a lot, but occasionally. and um, but I'll I'll, be, I'll I'll keep looking for opportunities to just to connect more. but people are very kind and reach out and I try and respond to people when I can and um, you know doing a lot more speaking than I used to as well, which is which I've enjoyed.
0: Beautiful. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I think that's actually where we connected. Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, And shout out to Cody Royal. I think Cody's the one that first uh, turned me on to your work. And I know we talked about some of the negatives of social media earlier, and I'm in agreement with you. But one of the positives is if it wasn't for social media, I'd have no idea who Cody Royal was. (laughs) <laughs> and I'd probably have no idea who Owen Eastwood was. And so there's a beautiful element of our ability to leverage those connections to actually go deeper with people. And sure enough, when I was in Toronto uh, a few years ago, uh, you know, Cody and I grabbed a coffee and, and met in person as well. And um, hopefully someday the two of us can do that as well. Um, it's been great okay. chatting with you today. This has been an awesome way to start my week. So thank you for being here. Um, And looking forward to many more of our conversations as well. Thanks, Owen. Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Earlier this year, I I was actually talking to the priest in our village. I live in a very small village in the Cotswolds area of England. And I'm I'm not exactly sure what prompted it, but we were having a chat. And I just asked him, when people are at the end of their lives what is it that they're focused on and he did not miss a beat he said the quality of their relationships always always is what they think about when they're about to pass